Hi, I'm Bob Fisher, and I'm your host today on This is Design Intelligence. Ella Hazard is the Managing Director of Arctura Ventures, a studio wholly backed by Armstrong World Industries that focuses on accelerating and incubating advancements in architecture, engineering, and material science. On this edition of This is Design Intelligence, she talks about the trial and error of her nonlinear career path, how the stumbles she made along the way have perfectly positioned her for her current job, and why applying the practices of venture design to the delivery of architecture might be the key in changing its value proposition. Welcome to this edition of This is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. Ella Hazard, welcome to This is Design Intelligence. It is a pleasure to be with you today. Pablo, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. So the first question I have for you is kind of a big one, and it's inspired by part of a line from your bio. Uh, Your bio says that you are driven by a persistent vision of what could be. And it makes me very curious. What is it that you think could be? What is your vision? Yeah, thanks for picking up on that. Well, persistence in general is important because I think that in order for anything to move forward, that is the majority of what's required. And I think what could be, there are some maybe some overarching themes that kind of continue to show up in my life. But I think it's also uh, maybe in part remaining open to kind of all possible futures or to dreaming with other people. That's maybe one of my more favorite pieces of, of or activities to do. But I think in terms of what could be, I get really excited about materials. I've always been like a material science nerd <laughs> and like the things that we will build with in the future. I get excited about technologies and how those two things actually will interact, how technology and materials will come together to inform the way that we either grow buildings from the ground up or how we dismantle things or how we disassemble and recreate with you know tools that are infinitely reusable. I don't know. I have I have lots of versions of what could be, but I think I envision a built environment that is far more equitable. Um, it's created for and by the people who will interact with it, and it is not something that is held quite so tightly by a select group of people. That's something that I feel pretty strongly about. There's a whole lot to unpack there. And the first place I would like to go with that is to to see where this vision came from. So when you describe the characteristics of what you think is a better built environment, how far back does that vision go in your personal and professional life and and how did it form? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I don't know. I think I have been trying to, to love being an architect for a really long time and not really succeeding, but in not succeeding in doing that, I have found a really different path um, toward enjoying creating things within the built environment. So I am a licensed architect and I have been for a long time. And that's important to me because of my my background and because of the representation that I think I can offer. Or like It's important to show up as a woman of color in this profession. But yeah, like this is not... Practice, the practice of architecture is something that I think I tried for probably 15 years in a number of various ways to really love and just could not, like, I, I hated it. <laughs> like I just hated it. And that was really disheartening because I did, didn't know how to fit into this space otherwise. Like there, there wasn't really another a good model for another path. And so it's taken me a lot of trial and error 
kind of figure out where I fit in and to ultimately realize that there isn't really any fitting in, that like maybe making my own path was the, the way to go. What were some of the errors in the trial and error <laughs> sure. part of this? There are a lot of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think I tried for a while to be an owner's rep. That was a terrible mistake. That was I was not good at that. I could not get out of the weeds. I was too much of an architect and couldn't let that go. I tried construction for a while, which I actually kind of liked. But again, what was like, like too much of an architect to do that well. I spent a lot of time in the world of startups, um, making products that would end up in architecture or technologies that would end up in architecture. And there were definitely some big failures there in terms of companies that didn't work. But there was a lot of learning and that that was sort of the experience that got me closer to where I have landed today. But yeah, there was, there was a lot of a lot of stumbling my way into finding a path. And I, I think I'm still probably in, in a version of a stumble. We always are, right? <laughs> yes, we always are. And you're, you're a good sport for, uh, for giving a shot at that question. Uh, it's, it's because, and I tell my kids this, that we learn as much from what we find out we don't like as what we find out that we do like. So, yeah. you know, I, I think that uh, everybody experiences that to some degree or another in figuring out what it is that they uh, what it is that they want to do. So you're with Arctura now. Tell us about your current role there and uh, just a little bit about what the company does. Technically, we have a company called Arctura Ventures, which is a little bit separate than Arctura, but was born out of the acquisition of Arctura by Armstrong World Industries. And what Arctura Ventures represents is all of Armstrong's new venture activity. So the way that I describe this, again, always making up our own language here, um, is we are a, we're a venture studio. It's a, it's a pretty small and scrappy company that's wholly backed by Armstrong as a corporate entity. But we... Instead of just going out to straight up acquire or to participate in all of our M&A activity as a, way, a means of growth, the skills that I think Arctura Ventures offers are the ability to build, test, learn, and fail really quickly to understand what our internal capabilities are, like how that integrates with the future of their sort of growth and development plans, and to, to, to build a little bit on our own before we were to, before we figure out how to actually operationalize or scale an idea. Um, and that's a, a capacity that they might have had to some degree in their own R&D and development um, sort of paths and plans, but they didn't have the capacity to sort of do it quite as nimbly as as we could. And so that's that's how we show up. All right. So what I'm hearing is you're, you're giving your description is that somebody has an idea for something, right? And it's probably some innovation in the building product world. And there's always the question of, will this work? You know, will this do what we imagine that it would do? And so Arctura Ventures' role is to seize on to those ideas and quickly go through what sounds like almost a design iterative process where you're going through and you're trying things and learning from whatever the outcome is, good or bad, and then ultimately helping the organization decide, oh, will this product work? Is there a there there? Is that close enough? That's pretty close. It's a, is, it, is there a there there? Is that there the right there for us, right? Is it a good fit for us? 
how and why? And if not, how and why? And if it's not for us, is there still something to develop here and to sell or to sort of, is it more appropriate for somebody else? Is there still a good idea that's not for us? Like that's a val- still a valid option. Um, but yeah, I think it's also in some ways about teaching. We're learning a lot about a big corporate company that's 160 years old. And we are a company that is, I don't know, two and a half years old, maybe. And, and we have, have very different sort of ways of operating. And so it's about learning from them what's important and what will be a good fit there. Um, not only in just the idea, but how that sort of nestles into their their strategy. And also about teaching, about taking this way of working and not just doing for the company, but working within different business units and within different sort of verticals in the company to build this capability throughout. We're kind of creating some flexibility and nimbleness within within the company itself, which is also, which was a learning I didn't, I didn't know that that's what we were going to end up doing <laughs> at all, but it's been actually a little painful and actually quite joyful to learn that this was something that was necessary and it's something we feel pretty good about. So are you working with the different business units to help them develop maybe a little bit more of an entrepreneurial approach to their work? Yep. We have some projects that are exclusively ours and that we take away and work on for a period of time. And then we have also, in the past year or so, done a little program where we've adopted adopted a project or two from other parts of the company to kind of help and work with other pieces of the company just because it either made sense and it was aligned with something that we were doing where it was a need that the business had um, and they didn't have really, we kind of swoop in and, and help a little bit and then see where it went from there. But yeah, it's been fun to do it both ways. Yeah, so so the roles that you've talked about uh, playing in the built environment, you started out in architecture, maybe not the best fit. Uh, you were a an owner's rep. You also talked about being in construction. And this is certainly what you're doing now is very related to those other things because all of it surrounds the built environment. What do you feel like is working for you in this role relative to making a better built environment? Well, I guess I would have to say that all of the things that I had listed as previous sort of failures or stumbles or, uh, you know, not the right fit actually were really useful in what I do now. I think in order to develop something to test and learn, you have to have connections across different parts of the value chain within the built environment. And you have to have an empathetic understanding of each person's pain point and like what their perspective is and what they want and need or what they really are trying to avoid and maybe both for, from any perspective. So whether it's the architect, whether it's the owner, whether it's the general contractor, the sub, right, you know, on down the line, like having had all of those experiences, I think allows me to be really good at connecting with and anticipating or getting into some juicy questions or problems that each one of those sort of perspectives might hold. It sounds like it would be hard to do what you do without having, you know, worn the shoes of a variety of different players in the in the design and delivery process. That's that's absolutely right, but I could not have known that. This was there wasn't <laughs> you know, hindsight is 2020, 20, right? But I, it, it felt, it felt like a mess all along the way, and I would say that my resume looked kind of like a yard sale for most of my life because I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't see the through line until this role. Actually, I always tell people my career path is very crooked. Yeah, <laughs> enjoying the pun. Yeah, <laughs> definitely not linear. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. But you know what? That that I think makes it more interesting and and things have a way of making sense even though the path looks like it has a lot of twists and turns. So you, you mentioned that all the things that you had done previously helped you be a bit more empathetic as to what the pain points are for various people in design, the design and delivery process. Are there other ways that those different experiences or maybe even zooming in on your, your training as an architect and your experience as an architect, did that, did that give you a way of thinking that translates well into the kind of role you're in now? Sure. So to bring it sort of full circle in a way, I would say that I had, I've traveled all the way around the, the value chain to kind of bring the circle full. But I think what I've realized is that I am very much an architect. <laughs> like you can't get rid of that. And it was a wonderful education. I just, I wasn't feeling comfortable or content with the way that I saw practice going. And therefore, really for a long time, wanted to sort of disassociate myself with that identity, only to realize actually that I'm completely an architect and that you can't really undo that. That Once that toothpaste is out of the tube, like, you know, it is, right? <laughs> it doesn't go. It's a little hard to get it back in there. Can't really put it back in so much. Um, but I think what that means is that there's there are a lot of different ways to be an architect and there's a lot of different types of architects required and definitely will be as we move forward to create what the future of our built environment will be. So when you think about the future of the built environment and the changing role of architects, for example, how do you think things will be different? Well, I think we have to change our value model or value proposition. I think that we're moving away from a service-based way of operating and demonstrating our value differently, either by productizing architecture or I'm not quite sure exactly how it will look. I think there are any number of paths that are viable, but it, it's definitely moving away from the current project delivery model that we've been operating under. So you mentioned that you think that the the way that architects either create value or explain the value that they create needs to change. Let's Let's unpack that a little bit. Tell me more. Sure. Well, if I take the practices that we use in venture design, which is what you mentioned before a little bit about like an iterative sort of fail fast kind of testing process. One of the things, well, maybe this is not about what will happen, but maybe it's a bit more about how I think we can kind of get to a different value proposition or different model of, of delivery, which is to say that we should kind of take this venture design and I would rather think about how to apply that to the process or the, the delivery of architecture rather than the actual products themselves, or we need to kind of do both at the same time. Because I don't know what will work. And I think that there are new tools and new technologies that are entering the world at large and definitely our profession. And I think that if we were to create some sort of <laughs> centralized, like instead of competing with each other, we have to work together to test and learn to understand what what is going to, what's going to stick, what makes good sense and for whom. And maybe it's for certain kinds of projects. I'm not sure. But I would really like us to take this sort of research-based venture approach to, to ourselves and to this whole entire profession. Because I think the risk is that if we don't, what I saw happening in the early days of BIM, right, before, like, with, like I saw general contractors adopting the Revit tools faster than the architects were doing that. And we ran the risk if we didn't figure out how to regain control over our contract documents and over our process and over our, our deliverables 
you know, we were, the tail was wagging the dog, so to speak, and we were behind. And I feel like we're on the cusp of another version of that. I think we recovered, but I think that that was still very much attached to the existing sort of project delivery model that we're still currently operating under. And I feel like if we don't figure this out, then owners, contractors, you know, other people are going to surpass us in our, if, we don't, if we're not more willing to change. And so maybe it's about taking the same approach toward venture design as I am with this one particular company toward a whole profession and say, how do we, how, how do we together think about doing this better? And I wonder if design intelligence isn't a wonderful nexus or central place to think about doing something like that. Just saying. Well, I could answer that, but I'm a little biased. <laughs> um, so when you say we're on the cusp of more more risk or more uh, potential changes that could go negatively for architects. What is the catalyst that's got us here? You mentioned you mentioned the the dawn of BIM earlier uh, as uh, you know as this first sort of crossroads that the profession had to deal with. What is the crossroads we're at now, and what is driving it? I think it's a confluence of a bunch of things. I don't think there's any one thing in particular. I think we're at a climate change <laughs> precipice that to me drives a sort of both operational but also embodied carbon opportunity for us to think about not only how we operate the things we currently have, but what we will make things out of. Um, and that leads me into some thoughts around circular economy from the embodied side. AI is an opportunity. Um, I, I know that we're all somewhat tired of talking about that, but I think that it, it is something that's going to have an impact on this profession, as it will many others. And it's something that if we don't figure out how to adopt and use these tools and take the opportunity, like we're at a wonderful opportunity right now. It's terrifying. What may happen is really scary, but I think that that we've needed a catalyst of sorts to really, really reimagine things from a like a more fundamental perspective. It seems oh. like some of the skills that you have to employ at Arctura Ventures could be really helpful in figuring out these big questions, right? Because your your role there is all about taking ideas and cycling rapidly through the analysis and iteration and you know reinvention of them to figure out whether or not they'll work or how they might need to change in order to work. Yep, that's exactly right. So what what kind of lessons do you think that architects and others in the built environment might take from the kind of organization that you're working in now to work to solve these bigger problems? What, how would you advise them? Well, I think that we need to move squarely away from a this is the way we've always done it mentality, because if we know anything to be true, it's that what got us here isn't also going to be the thing that gets us there, wherever there is. And I don't know if you've ever read the book, The Black Swan. It's like that we always think that like the swans were always white until there was a black one, right? <laughs> like we, we don't we don't ever foresee these things coming. And so a very wise person once told me that the best thing that we can do is stand like like in a tennis pose, like like knees bent, kind of nimble and like ready, ready to sort of move in whichever direction because we can't anticipate what exactly is gonna happen. But all we can do is prepare ourselves to be more responsive and or proactive and to be okay with failure on the way to something new. So when you when you think about taking that tennis pose that uh, that the wise person advised you to take, what does that look like in your daily life? I think it 
comes a lot with figuring out how to very gently but persistently bust through this idea of this is the way that we do it. And you're like, okay, that's great. I really respect that. And I understand that I am literally paid because of what we have done before. But <laughs> if we do not, or if we fail to recognize that this is not how things will be done, then we're, we're caught flat-footed. So it's about, that's sort of the, 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 the broad theme of my career and in this role. But I think it's also about listening carefully to what the problems are and offering solutions to move us off of our flat spot or point of inertia into something that feels a little more experimental. And while I don't, I'm not, I'm not personally in my career a huge supporter of sort of incremental progress. I think you need to both think disruptively and incrementally at the same time. And one is sort of, they're not headed toward the same thing. But if you're starting from an, from an absolute flat spot, then an incremental change is better than no change. But incremental change isn't going to get you to the same point as disruptive change. And so if we don't think about all sort of the now, next, and future all at the same time, then I think we're doing ourselves a disservice. So when you're, you're getting into this kind of thing, you're talking about changing the minds and the hearts of individuals. Uh, you're talking about asking people to break habits. And you're also talking about changing the culture of organizations and how they look at the world and how they make decisions. It's a pretty tall order. How do you go about doing that successfully? Like, you know, some people are attracted dis to disruptive change and other people are horrified by the idea of disruption. How do you work with all of these forces and factors of inertia in order to push things in the positive direction? I think of my <laughs> I don't know. I think that's something, Bob, that I'm still really working hard to learn about myself. I think that what I thought that this role was going to be is not exactly what it was, but uh, that's maybe my growth edge is that I'm I'm still trying to find different ways to communicate a similar idea and what I've what I've found or maybe the most successful approach or entryway into this is to find something that's meaningful to somebody else and work on that with them. To do, not to tell them what you're going to do, but to work with them on something that they care about and to get engaged that way. So to meet them where they are and start from there. Yeah, exactly. Do you have a change success story? Yeah, I do have a good change success story. I'm going to be somewhat vague about the details, <laughs> given the sensitive nature of what we do. But um, I would say that we we picked a project last year that nobody really asked us to look at but it was something that I was kind of interested in and the rest of the team seemed game to, to go get a little messy and figure some things out. And uh, so we kept it hidden from the, the business for, I don't know, maybe six months or so, which is a little bit risky and kind of dangerous thing to do. But it was actually for the business and on the business, but we just needed to develop it to a point where it was sort of tangible enough that it would make sense. But we presented that back about mid-year last year and what I thought was going to be received with some sort of raised eyebrows, people were really, really excited about. And over the course of the, the last six months or the last two quarters of last year, it kind of snowballed in an interesting way internally. And we were able to sort of wrap other facets of the business. So it started with something that came up out of an R&D thing. 
And then it was like, mm, maybe this is actually attached to sustainability. So we drew some folks from the sustainability teams. But then we're like, oh, well, there have some, there's some facets of core business tied into this. And so we just kind of slowly, like normally I would approach something by just saying, here's what we're doing. Here's what I'm working on. Like, this is what we're. And I, this was a much different approach that kind of just like slowly drew in people. And it kind of, it was, it was a fun project. Uh, there was a lot of good energy around it and enthusiasm. And in some ways, I think by not having presented the whole thing all at once, it kind of, there was like an air of like, oh, well, if you heard of, have you heard of what's going on over here with this fun little thing? And it, it grew into something actually pretty interesting and it's been very well received. And so again, maybe not the what, but I learned a lot about a different way of delivering and or procuring or creating interest around something. So you grew it slowly. It sounds like it, it sounds like it's more of an investment of time and energy and intention. Yeah, it was definitely that, but I would say it was still much faster than the way our business would probably have done it on their own or if they would have ever taken on a challenge like this. So that, that, that was actually kind of fun. So it was, it was fast and slow at the same time. <laughs> gotcha. So when you take this eye toward change and you think about uh, you think about the profession, we've talked about some ways that uh, the profession needs to change how it creates or explains its value. Um, but I'm curious about what other changes you feel are important for the profession uh, of uh, architecture and design in the built environment. Uh, what do you think is um, what do you think's going on? that we might want to make different in the future? I feel really strongly about circularity of products and thinking about how we will procure materials from what we've already borrowed from the earth in the future. I think this is something that we really, really need to think about. And having sat in different positions across the value chain, I think that in order to achieve that or to really think about that well, it will require closing the loop and working in a different way across the value chain. So I think that architects who would consider themselves to be at the beginning of that value chain also should be getting involved at the end of said value chain and thinking about the full life cycle of everything. I think there's actually a real opportunity here for architects to get engaged not only in the design of buildings, but the materials that we build with and how we deconstruct or you know, take things apart at the end of life. Do you think that it means that people trained as architects might need to branch out into other organizations in the in the value chain? I would love that. I think I think that and vice versa. I would love to see developers and owners of, you know, and general contractors. I would I would love to see like a, an interesting symposium or meeting place for everybody and for everybody to walk in everybody else's shoes for a little bit and try to understand. I think that we're actually more aligned than we think we are or sometimes behave. I feel like architects are in some ways the most burdened across the entire value chain, both with like the contractual obligations. There's a huge amount of responsibility. It's both a science. There's a huge technical part of it. That's an art. And I'm going to ask something of us that I, so I'm acknowledging that we, we bear the most, the brunt of a lot of this, but I think because of that, we've also kind of created this air about who we are as a profession that makes, that's a little bit impenetrable. And I think because of that, we are the ones that actually need to kind of move off of our position first. And I think that also by doing that, we create space for opportunity. And so while I would like the general contractors and the developers of the world to come come our way, I think we should take the first step 
honestly. What direction does that first step take? I don't know. That's a good question. I don't have a good answer to that. I think it's I think it's anywhere. It, I don't know that it actually matters. I don't know that there's a direction that matters. It just means a step away from or acknowledging that there is more out there and that we need to also be empathetic to that. Like, I think that's actually a position of power, right? Humility and vulnerability for me equal power. So that's what I would like to see us do. <laughs> you know, in the moment, though, humility and vulnerability don't always feel powerful. So how how have you come to the the feeling that they are powerful? I think that maybe the three most powerful words in the English language are I don't know, right? Once you once you can let go of that, yeah, you're right. It doesn't feel great <laughs> initially, but once you can, once you understand the power and what you get back from, I don't know. I think the 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 value proposition there, the cost benefit on that, like it, it's pretty evident pretty quickly. Well, those three words unlock curiosity. Correct. And without that, what do you have? The same the same thing over and over. <laughs> right. Which is okay yeah. for for some things and and some people. But it uh, it it doesn't speak well to progress. So in addition to everything else, you are a big advocate for women in leadership, and you do a lot of volunteering in in that area. Tell us more about that. Yeah, that's something that's near and dear to my heart, and I think it would extend beyond just women into any sort of underrepresented or marginalized group, particularly as it relates to the built environment and or tech. So I think I sit at the nexus of startup venture culture and built environment in both of those places are tough places to be as a woman. <laughs> so so I think one, the, one of the groups that I've been working with and I'm becoming more engaged with this year is uh, a group called Women in Sustainability and Clean Tech, which is an awesome group of folks. And it's a very sort of grassroots from the ground up group that I encourage not only myself, but a bunch of the rest of the members on my team to volunteer some time with. So I spent a lot of time with them. I treated myself to a really fancy membership at an organization called Chief in the last year, which was an interesting experience of not necessarily volunteering, but engaging with other women on a sort of professional level that had nothing to do with built environment. And that was a good learning and growing experience. And then one of the more fun and curious experiences that I've had is with a, a group of women called Women in Innovation, which is sort of an East Coast, New York based group that drew together all kinds of women from different parts of sort of the innovation cycle and different scales of operation, but with, I think, the, the common mindset of <laughs> how, do we, how do we build a more generative process across all sectors? And that was, that was pretty cool. That was a six-month experience that really fueled my soul. And so I try to give as much time back to that group as I possibly can because it was fruitful for me. So if you could get across like one big message on how we can make a more diverse and equitable profession to people of goodwill who want to make that happen, what, what, is, that, what is that core idea? Where do we need to, to start? What do we need to embrace? The way I think I would choose to approach this is a, is a do with. And I would say that it's not about having to take away any seats. Nobody has to lose anything. This is not a zero-sum game, right? Nobody has to lose anything for somebody else to gain something. And so it's about bringing somebody with you to everything you do, whether it's a meeting, it's a different opportunity. Make sure that you're paying attention to those in the profession who 
might not always have these opportunities and go out of your way to make sure that you're spending time with them, to give them opportunities to see different aspects of things and to to do with and to always be looking to reach back and bring others along with. It's about making more seats at the table, actually. Like, let's double the seats at the table and everybody brings somebody. Well, it's a, a very powerful idea that's all around, you know, abundance. That there's abundant opportunity that being generous is a way to maybe even create greater opportunity. And I, I love the idea that it's not a win-lose game. No. Yeah. It can't be. <laughs> we really appreciate you and everything that you're doing. Well, I, thanks for the opportunity to chat. It's always lovely to speak with you all. And I am I'm super supportive of all of the work that you guys at Design Intelligence and Design Futures Council do. So thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of This is Design Intelligence. The producer is Laura Spells. The sound engineer is Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.